Zechariah and the 10th chapter. I want to read this, this passage of scripture again in Zechariah. And the fourth verse, I think that, um, I think I have exhaustively, <laughs> exhaustively covered the stone. I'm, unless the Lord changes it in the next 30 seconds, we're moving on. So I think we're, I think we're clear <laughs> to move on tonight. I've been looking at this passage of scripture. I've been thinking about this and the Lord's really been moving in my heart. I try to share, I think one of the things that's really important when you preach, when we teach, is to share what we, what we have. We can't give what we don't possess, right? We can't give what somebody else has. And a lot of what we hear today, anybody hear about the um, plagiarism that's been going on in some of the pastoral stuff? Anybody hear about that? Okay, nobody's heard. It. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you about it. What they've discovered is uh, the, the new head, and I'm going I'm to touch this here in a minute, but the new head of the Southern Baptist Convention got up and he preached a message that was exactly the same message that the previous guy had preached about two years prior. And uh, people started kind of wondering what was going on there. And out of that has resulted that really what a lot of these guys are doing is they pay for people to write their sermons and they just, they just get up and, and recite them for you. Um, I don't think that's the way the word of the Lord works. If that's what you're doing, you need to go get a real job. You go get an honest job. Um, so the word of the Lord is fresh. I think it has to be moving inside of us. Uh, I think this is an area where a lot of parents make mistakes. They want their kids to grow up and serve God. They want their kids to grow up and know God, but they themselves have nothing to give their children because they don't know God themselves. And so they're hoping that something's going to happen in their children that they don't have. Well, I don't want to do it that way. And then the same idea, I don't want to try to preach something that God isn't touching me with. So I think we have that frequently. You know, that's what we do around here. Everybody's sharing. I appreciate all the different perspectives. Every time somebody gets up, Brother Aaron shares something. Chris, Dustin, Austin, Jake, a few months ago, first time he ever preached. Uh, but pastor, we all have different perspectives. We're looking at that same diamond, but we're just looking at it from a different angle. And so that's what I've been trying to do. Uh, if you're in Zechariah, I gave you plenty of time. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4. Say amen if you're there. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. Lord, I pray that you would help me to deliver what you have put in my heart. I pray that it would be an encouragement, a strengthening, and a growing process in each of our lives. And we just want to give you honor tonight, Jesus. We pray that you would be glorified in everything else that happens in this place that more than anything else, that we would be drawn to you and that you would receive glory in our lives and we give you all the honor, Jesus, and everybody say amen. amen. So I think I've covered the corner. Tonight I want to look at the nail. The nail is, uh, is, a, is a type that while we saw so much with the rock, uh, we could see all of these scriptures. There's only a few references in the scripture to the nail. And there's some difference of opinion as to what this nail would be. First off, not everybody has been here for all of this teaching, so let me say this. Out of him is speaking of out of Judah is going to come this, this one who is the corner, this one who is the nail, this one who is the battle bow, and this one we know to be Jesus. That's, that's what we're talking about. 
So it's this description of who Jesus is, is what we're trying to discover. Maybe some things about him that we have not yet known. So we see it really clearly though, all over through the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we see Christ as the rock. We see that and we worked on that for a few weeks because there's so much depth there. But when we come to the nail, this is a depiction that's a little bit more obscure, not quite as frequently used, in fact, only a few times. So there's some difference of opinion as to what this nail might be. What does that word even mean? Um, some think that this would refer to a nail that's driven into two uh, or, or however many wooden members, and it would be used to unite and to bind those two members together. That's something we're pretty familiar with in our day, just what we would consider to be a nail. We take a nail and we drive it in, and, and it holds all of that wood together. That's what these houses are made of. That's what this church is made of, and it's a very common thought. Others would think that this word nail to be descriptive of a large tent peg, that would be placed into the ground and upon which all of the cords and the, the, the lining of that tent would be secured upon this peg. Synonymously used, hard to differentiate. But the idea that everything was strapped to this one tent peg. How many of you have ever seen an old Bedouin tent? You know, where they travel around the desert and they don't have a lot of wood. They're going to have, they don't want to carry a lot of wood. They're going to have just a few members. But this main tent pole, everything hangs off of it. The third opinion given concerning this word would be the idea of a nail that has been placed inside of a dwelling that is used to hang all the precious things on. Now, all three of these are used concerning this idea of a nail, and really we would have a hard time differentiating which one would be being talked about here. But as I begin to think about that, I would say that every one of them would be descriptive of Christ. We see that he is the nail that holds all things together. We see him as the tent peg upon which the whole tent is hung and without which the tent falls apart. And we see him because... This idea of this nail placed in, in the wall, if you think about this uh, old, we, we don't think in this way, but 2,000 years ago, or in this case when Zechariah is writing, let's say 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, they didn't have a lot of furniture. You didn't like, carry around a chest of drawers with you through the desert. They would have had a few things that were precious and important, and even as they begin to develop structures where they would live in a stationary place and maybe they had some stone walls around them, they still didn't have a lot of furniture. So there would have been a place, a nail driven at some point, either driven into a wall or built with it in the wall, that upon which everything that was important to them would be hung upon to keep it from damage. How many have five-year-old or have had a five-year-old? That's why it's hung on the wall. Because they're going to get into everything. They're going to break everything. So this idea of something that is important being hung. All three of these descriptions would describe Jesus. But the nail described regardless of which case we use. Is used to describe something that supports everything. That's the description of this nail. Upon which all of the value of the house is contained and without which it completely collapses. Look at your, at your book of Hebrews 
in your Bible there. Near the back of your, of your scriptures, you're going to find the book of Hebrews. I want you to look this passage of scripture that Pastor dealt with just a few weeks. Uh, I think it was last week. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. This passage of scripture, I have to just retouch it. I won't go back through what Pastor really dealt with, but uh, it was so excellent you can go and listen to it. But listen to this. Who being the brightness of his glory, or the apagasma of his glory, and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This speaks clearly concerning God in Christ when it calls him the originating point of the glory. And that's the part that Pastor dealt with. But it also describes him as the character or the hypostasis. Now I know your Bible probably says the person. But that word is prosopon in Greek. And this is not the word that's being used here. That would be concerning the face or, the, or the, the person of someone. But this word is the hypostasis, and that word in the Greek can be dissected simply. Hupo means under, and stasis means to stand. So it literally means to stand under. It means to support. If you think, we, we t- transliterate that word, uh, character, into the English, and that means something different than hypostasis does. Character kind of defines maybe, maybe what I am, and maybe that's why they take it. They, they, it supports maybe everything that I am. But really this idea is that there is, a, there is a support. So he is the character, and it means the exact image is the character, and then the hypostasis is the support for that character. So he, he supports everything that God is. Without Christ, we cannot see God. Without Christ, we cannot know God. If you're trying to understand God and you're not getting to Jesus, you're never going to get there. There is no possible way for you to get the character of God without getting the support of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because if I trust any other thing, I'm going to wind up on sinking sand. But the foundation is firm. So we get this idea again that there is this rock that's being built upon. And if I'm going to set a tent peg up, I want to make sure it's into firm ground. If I don't get it into firm ground, then it's going to fall apart and all the structure is going to collapse with it. So this idea is this concept that, that Christ is the support He upholds the character of God. He upholds the brightness of the glory of God. So being a contractor, in my mind, it goes to the hundreds of times that I have set up forms to pour concrete. And we go out and we lay the ditches out and we dig the ditches and then we set forms in order to build a building and that building has to go exactly to plan. It has to be to within, we try to get it to within a sixteenth of an inch so that it is square and it is true. All of the things we talked about about the rock a few weeks ago. And when we, when we think about this, that it, it literally means that the character is this if you are pouring something into a form. It's the exact image. 
Jesus is the exact image of God. Exact, not a supplementary, not a secondary image, not, not the image of a son, but the image of God Almighty is Christ. And the forms are there, and this concrete is poured in place. It is cast in order that we can see him. And everything is built upon it. Everything is built upon it. In this case, the text, we might would use the example of a blacksmith who has heated the iron and has poured it into a mold or a character in order that he could create a nail upon which the whole structure is supported. The hypostasis. Everybody following me? The idea is that God created this body. He took upon himself the form of humanity in order that he could hang all the glory so that we could see it. Otherwise, we would not know him. That's the idea. So he creates an ability, not for him, but for you and I. God's not confused about who he is. God's not trying to relate to himself. God's not relationally figuring out Father, Son, and Spirit. That's us. We're the ones who struggle with that. But God revealed himself, his character, in order that that character supports the framework for everything we believe in. Without which... Everything falls apart. So we see Jesus as the exact character of everything that God is. He supports the whole building. And we can't even begin to see God outside of Jesus. But when we see Christ, we see the fullness of God. The exact image of God. And the scripture in Hebrews there says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now I want you to attach that to that text that we just read in Zechariah, which calls him the nail. It is his word that upholds everything. And we either have to believe that we can trust the words of Jesus, or we need to take the Bible and throw it away and just go live our life. Either what Jesus said is true, either what the scripture said concerning him is true, either what the law said and the prophets prophesied concerning him is true, or we, we need to remove this book from our presence because it has no value. And we either have to take it all or we take none of it. There's no in-between. There's a lot of argument these days, a lot of... A lot of conjecture about how these scriptures no longer apply, how it was culturally written, how that, yeah, it applied back in the Bible days, but it doesn't work for today because times are so different. And, and there's so much question about all this cultural shift that's happening. But I'm telling you, the word of God is true. And it supports everything. And when we see Christ, not only do we see that the word of God supports him, but we see that he supports the word of God. Everything is upheld by him. Everything is contained in him. In the book of Ezra, he chronicles the fact that the children of Israel had been in exile because of their absolute debauchery, filth, and, and wild living. They had lost their land. They had lost their temple. They had lost the blessing in their lives, all because they lacked faithfulness to God. And now God, in the book of Ezra, begins 
the re- you can turn there if you want to while, while, while I'm talking. In the book of Ezra, he begins the rebuilding process of, of what's going to happen. So the temple is now being rebuilt. And they are supposed to be purifying themselves. They're, they're coming back from captivity, a captivity that was induced by their lack of faithfulness to the word of God by their lack of concern about the things of God, by the fact that they were taking other gods to themselves. And because of all that, they were thrown into captivity, and God sent them out. And now they're coming back. God is bringing them back. The temple's being restored. The land is being given back to them. And this is what Ezra is talking about. And about the ninth chapter, the princes come to Ezra. And they're disturbed. They're discouraged. Because they come to Ezra and they say, listen, we have a problem. The people, the Levites, and even the priests have not separated themselves from the abominations of the land. So they haven't learned their lesson. They've come back from exile but yet they're still bringing all of the abomination, all of the filth, and they're bringing it to the temple. They're bringing it to God's house. They're bringing it to their own daily living. They were forced into other gods when they were taken into captivity, but they're bringing it back with them. They look like the world. They've got wives that are pagan. They have nothing sacred, and when Ezra hears this, he is distraught. If you read down, beginning in the first verse, and you read down a little bit, you find that he is so consumed with frustration that he begins to rip out his hair and pull out his beard and, and to throw himself at the mercy of God because of, the, because of the lack of faithfulness from God's people. Now look at verse 6. And he said, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our father, we have been, fathers, we have been in great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land to the sword and to the captivity and to spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. Look at verse 8. And now, for a little space, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes And give us a little reviving in our bondage. I read this and I could not help but think about the condition of America. I thought about how we once understood the value of the word of God. How we once believed that government could not exist without accompanying the word of God. This was ingrained in the founding fathers. This is what they believed. How we once had laws that protected innocence. I don't know what just happened, but it got loud. That protected innocence and valued marriage and valued family. 
And now all of those things have been taken away. And the result of our lack of faithfulness, the result of our lack of commitment to the things of God has been we have watched this country be taken captive by Satan. We've watched as Satan has now taken authority and taken prominence in the land. But the problem that I have is not just so much with with what's happening in our country. But I look at what's happening in the church. At a time when we should be so anxious to see that God bring us back to that time. I have heard for years, Second Chronicles, if we will humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways, then we'll hear from heaven and God will heal our land. How many times have you heard that being preached? Over and over and over and over again. But God's people no longer value His word. God's people worship at the feet of false gods. They revile the truth. They despise authority. They pander to culture. They accept sexual perversion. They refuse God's commands to modesty. And instead let culture determine the various forms of nakedness to be acceptable. They indulge in every form of intoxication. They entertain themselves with the filth of this world. And for all of the judgment of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. Yet we stand and say, hey, listen, the country's a mess. But if we'll hearken and turn. But the church isn't hearkening and turning. I literally, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, preached a message recently where he said, Homosexuality will not send you to hell. And I know this because heterosexuality won't send you to heaven. The problem is, man's logic defies God's word. Who gave him the authority to... Go against the word of God. Yet, we're going to talk about the perversion in the land. We're going to talk about the mess of our, of our government and the corruption and the, the election process. But we're not going to deal with the issues that are facing us. And what's facing us is that we've got to understand that that the things of God are true. But we look around and we see so much turmoil. We see so much to be concerned about, as pastor said. So much to be afraid of. Any of you ever get distraught when you watch Christian television? I flip by all of these preachers and I watch different churches and there are times where I'm just literally, I want to vomit. Say, why do you watch it? Because it's supposed to be Christian. I'm trying to figure out, is there there anybody preaching? And there are some, but is there anybody preaching the truth of the gospel? But I'll tell you this much, and this is what I want to say about this, is that while we can look and see so much mess all around us, in every, every crevice of Christianity, every denomination, we see problems. But we can look just as Ezra did, and we can say, but... In all of this, God has given us a nail in a sure place. Christ isn't moving. 
Everything around us might be moving. The church might be falling apart. What's calling itself the church. The country is falling apart. And we can look and we can see how could we possibly hold this thing together. But I want to tell you, it's not our job to hold it together. We don't have to worry about holding it together. We have a nail that has been driven into the sure place. And if we can find Jesus in the middle of this, then we can find security. We can find truth. It's going to be tough. Christian culture has almost fully accepted homosexual lifestyle. I literally believe in the next 10 years, almost every major denomination will be accepting homosexuality. Because you will not be able to operate with the blessing of the government without doing it. And we're going to have to make some decisions about whether we're going to hang upon that nail, put all of our value upon that nail, or whether or not we're going to see if we can find a different foundation to build on. It's not going to be easy. But if we can get a hold of him, he is firm, he is sure, and he is true. Everybody say amen. amen. The book of Isaiah has a promise that I want to look at tonight. I don't know if there's any greater prophet concerning Christ then Isaiah he speaks so frequently concerning the Lord there are some passages that are just so descript and give us absolute confidence that Jesus is the Messiah we find this all throughout this scripture but one of the places that I think is possibly overlooked a little bit is in Isaiah chapter 22 Isaiah 22 tells us of Shebna. He was a person there in Israel. And <clears throat> in whole, every, con every conduct of his life was wicked. He was trying to seize authority. He was trying to uh, usurp rule and come into his own, his own stature and standing. He was vile and wicked. And God said, I'm going to cut him off. The one promise that I know is true, and we find it in, in Ezra, and we can see it again here in, in the book of Isaiah. Where sin does abound, grace does abound more. Where there is extreme wickedness and darkness, the light shines brighter. So with every passing day, as we can look and see darkness prevailing, we can also look and understand that the light is not going to be quenched by the darkness. It cannot overtake it, the Word of God says. So oftentimes when we see this great outpouring of God, it is almost always in the midst of the darkest of darkness. We see this in Ezra, we, talk, we see this nail in the sure place, and now we see in Isaiah chapter 22, Shebna's wickedness, and the contrast to that is now what God is going to say in verse 20. He's going to deal with Shebna, but for the sake of time, I won't, I won't go into that tonight. But look at verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. He says, I'm going to raise up Eliakim. Eliakim means who God raises up. And he's going to raise him up from Hilkiah, which means God is my portion. 
In other words, God says, I'm going to provide a son to deal with the sin. Let me propose to you that Eliakim is a picture of Christ. Just follow along and it won't be very hard for us to see this. Look at verse 21. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hands. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He's going to be clothed in a robe of righteousness. And the government will be in his hand and he will be a father to Jerusalem. This sounds exactly like what Isaiah says in the ninth chapter and the sixth verse when he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and we will call his name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Verse 22, the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulders. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. The one who holds the keys is the owner of the house. The house of David is not given to just any of his sons, but the house of David referring to the kingdom rule of David's line is given to Christ. And he holds the keys. In fact, he tells his disciples in the book of Matthew, he said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. I said it earlier, you can't give what you don't have. But he said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind shall be bound. And whatever you loose shall be loosed. The reason he can do this is because he owns it. It's his to give. He said, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. He has all rule. He has all authority. And I like this verse in chapter, or at verse 23. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of the father's house. One from the tribe of Judah. The corner. The stone. The nail in a sure place. And all The glory of the Father hangs upon him. Just look quickly back at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, that verse we already read, and you're going to find that he is the radiance of the glory. All of the glory hangs upon him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. I like to do this because I don't want you to think I'm just up here making stuff up. We, we find the scriptures to support the character of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of God. 
and upon him hangs all the glory. What disturbs me so much about the movement that's happening in Reading, the Bethel movement that's birthed out of here, what concerns me so much is this desire for glory. They call themselves glory hounds. They're looking for glory. Glory clouds, glory tunnels, fire tunnel, all this glory. But what they don't want to talk about is Jesus. They just want to talk about Jesus as the door to salvation. They just want to talk about him as a, as a portion of the glory. But the truth is, is that if we're ever to find the glory of God, we're going to see it fully revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you with something? Jesus is able to take the weight of your problems. You talk about the glory of God. That nail that's fastened in the firm place that can uphold all of my issues. And not just mine, but all of yours. He can support it. He can take it. I don't know why he did. I wish that I look at my life and I wish that I was not in a need of a Savior, but I am. I wish I was not in a condition where when I see him hanging on the cross that I would say, that should have been me. But he can take it. I love the passage in Isaiah chapter 53. And, and it's, it's such a profound portion of scripture and, and we all pretty much know it. But I just want to read verses 4 and verse 5. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Jesus can carry your problems. We take the, the nail now. Okay, well, Pastor Rodney, I don't know how that applies to me. You talked about all this stuff. It just went right over my head. I don't know what it means. Well, let me tell you what it means. It means that whatever your issue is, Jesus has already borne it. He's already walked down the road carrying your shame. He's, dis he's carried the fact that you have despised him. He's carried the fact that you have rejected him. And he bore it to the cross. And he's able to carry you now. He's strong enough. He's powerful enough to deal with whatever issues you've got in your life. How many would say amen? I thought about that old song that said the load of sin was more than I could bear. I think Peter understood this. He probably knew it as well as anybody when he sat there the night that Jesus was being taken and they were trying him and mocking him and Peter sat there and denied him, swore an oath, I don't know him, then cursed on an oath, I don't know him. And yet, just a few moments later, just hours later, he is sitting weeping because of his decisions. I think he understood the load of sin. Judas understood it also. Judas was so grieved by his betrayal of Jesus that he went out and hung himself. 
and he found no redemption. But Peter understands something completely different. Though he found himself in despair, though he went and wept bitterly, though he, he thought, how could I have done this to the one that I have walked with and followed and loved? But he says in his writing in the second, first book in the second chapter, he says, who in himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The load of sin was more than I could bear. Anybody ever felt the weight of your sin? Anybody ever get revisited by something in your past that you wish you never had to hear of again or think of again? And it becomes weighty. And it becomes too much. But I like the song continues, but he took my sins away. He took my sins away and now I roll on him my every care. Whatever your situation is, Whatever the, the pressure and the weight that we are bearing, I want you to know tonight that you can cast your cares upon him. In fact, Peter says this again in his writing. He says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. You can trust him. You know why we struggle to trust because we're afraid that in the trusting, we're going to lean too hard, we're going to hang too heavy upon it, and it's going to give way. Anybody ever felt something give out, give out from underneath you? I remember I was watching this week, and you should never do this, but I was watching roller coaster rides that failed. <laughs> now, I've pretty much been cured of roller coasters, I'm just going to tell you. I was on when I was like 15, 16. On every, every, every big amusement park has one of those ships that goes like this and then eventually does the big loop-de-loop. -loop. And I was on one. We would do, a bunch of youth were down at a, some day down there. And, and in the middle of the ride, my little thing that goes over the top of you, the harness thing, came loose. And I was hanging on. And there's nothing you can do. I'm, we're, we're going there. The only thing you can do is stop it. Well, it's going to stop anyway. So I'm hanging on, clinching and because I don't trust it. And I know that if this falls, I'm going to be hurt. And this is exactly why it's so difficult to trust. We can say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my future. But as soon as we start leaning on him, you say, you know what? What if this fails? <laughs> what if this actually isn't God? What if I just ate pizza last night and that wasn't God speaking to me? And it, and it brings that fear, and it brings that doubt, and that discouragement. But I want to tell you that God's word is sure. Jesus speaks the truth, and it's sure. And I love one of my favorite passages of Scripture, is where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, and verse 28, He says, Come unto me, all you that labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's the words of the Lord. You can trust him. 
You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your heart. You can trust him with your sin. All of your failures, everything hangs upon him already. There's nothing that you can come to Jesus with that you cannot trust him with. You can trust him with your future. Come on, young people, say amen. You can trust him with your past. Come on, old people, say amen. Whatever your situation, you can trust Jesus. We have been given a nail into a sure place. It's not a nail that's going to come out. Whether you see him as a tent peg, or whether you see him as the nail and the, and the member that holds the whole thing together, or whether you see him as the nail upon which the glory of the Father is hung, he is in a sure place and he's not going to move. The writer of Hebrews says, imitate our faith. Hebrews chapter 13. Imitate our faith. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, you don't like what I'm preaching to you? Come back next week. Maybe you'll hear something different. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's the same message because it's the same truth. And I'm thankful that every time I come to God, He's coming with the same answer. I'm thankful that I can ask the same question and I don't like the response. And so I can come back with a different, different way to phrase the question and the response is still the same. Because God is not changing. We change. The world changes. Everything around us changes. But Jesus is firm. A firm foundation. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they are safe. You can trust Him with your righteousness. You, you can trust Him with your failures. You can trust Him with your sins. You can trust Him with your burdens. You can trust Him with your fears. You can trust Him with your sicknesses. You can trust Him with your shame. But you can also trust Him with your salvation. And you can trust Him with your life. And you can trust Him with your future. And you can trust Him with your healing. He's firm. He's stationary. And I want to tell you this one last thing. The Scripture says that he plants us like trees by a stream of water that we would be planted and rooted. But I, what, what I really want to see, and maybe it's a depiction that I don't see exactly in the scripture, maybe somebody can find it and show it to me, but I want to see it, is I want him, I want that nail of Jesus to be driven through me into that cross that I never walk away from him. That I never move. I want, I want Christ in me to be immovable. I want him to be a firm foundation in my life permanently, not temporary. I remember years ago, years and years ago, when I was youth pastoring, and we had all the, the kids coming, we had a hundred kids and it seemed like things were clicking. And I looked out and I realized that really nobody knew the Lord in the youth group. It was just, it was just a lot of fun and games. And we did a lot of stuff. And 
talked to dad, and dad really encouraged me that we would change the direction and that we would focus on teaching the word of God that would be a firm foundation. And we got a lot of families here as a result of that that now have children that are doing the same thing. But I, I would say this often to the, to the young people. I don't want to see that you're living for God right now. Well, that sounds really weird for a youth pastor. Well, I'm going to tell you this. If you, if you start out living for God right now and in five years you're not living for God, then, then none of that matters. There is no alternative to surrender. There's no wavering. Now, we love to depend upon the Lord and we say, oh, I'm so thankful he's not wavering. The bad news is when you waver, he still doesn't. He doesn't waver with you. Well, I don't like the foundation anymore. I'm going to kind of jump off the foundation for a little while, and then I'll jump back on for a while. There was a lady that we knew in a church fairly locally that she decided that she was just going to take a break from God for a while, and her life has been a constant spiral out of control ever since. You cannot take a break from the firm foundation. And I'm going to tell you one more thing, is you don't know how many opportunities you have to hear the Word of God. God's grace is, is great. His mercy is long-suffering toward us. And God's desire for us is that we would be planted, that we would become firm because He is firm. You're wavering. you got shaky legs. You're not that strong. But Jesus is. And if you get Jesus in your heart, that's why we don't spend a lot of time preaching about the specifics of, of you need to wear this or you need to do this or you need to go here. Because all of that you can do and not ever know him. But if you get Jesus inside of your heart, that will take care of everything. He will cure every problem. He will make stable the instability in your life. I don't have any songs about nails. But I want you to forever remember that Jesus is that nail that holds everything together in your life. As you get older, young people, and you get married, and you start going through the difficulties of life, you start trying to figure out how to process everything that's going to come at you. Come on, some of you old married couples. Carrie and I married 23 years today. Thankful for it. I will not say anything mean. I promise. I'm thankful. But you're going to go through some things. If you get looking at the things, you're going you're gonna to be in the middle of a storm. You're not going to know where to turn. But Sarah, what you said tonight is so true. I already know the hiding place. If I get off with Carrie, I know the issue. I know the answer. The answer is i got to get back to the firm place. I'm looking at the storm. I'm trying, to fix the, I'm trying to fix the storm, and all I need to do is get myself into Jesus. If I get Jesus at the center of my life, then everything takes care of itself. And when we get older, we go through a lot of different scenarios. I mean, I, I tell the young guys right now, they got the little kids, and they're, oh, my goodness, these kids. I'm like, you, don't even, you haven't even broke the surface of difficulty yet. <laughs> that little five-year-old trying to figure out how to get him to potty train or to eat. You wait till they get to teenage years, and you're just cutting your teeth in this thing. 
And when you get in the middle of life and and storm is swarming around you, you're going to find that Jesus is the security and he is the rock and he is the nail upon which you can trust that building of your life. And when we get old, and I thought about my Uncle Skip, 60 years, married to my aunt, and she passed, and it broke his heart. How do you go on living? I'm to the point now, after 23 years, I can't imagine my life without Carrie. You know, all you old married people know that. I don't even know how it would function. 60 years. There is no hope except that Jesus is the security. Whatever the storm that's coming at you, and every one of us is going to face different things. Every one of us is going to go through different things. But I want to remember the words of Jesus where he said, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And I love when we attach that because the rock that we talked about for so many weeks is the foundation and the house is held together by the nail. And you are building a long-term edifice for the glory of God and that is your life. Why don't you just close your eyes right where you're at And just thank the Lord for the security that you now have. And I want to tell you tonight, if you're, if you're walking in instability, grab a hold of his hand. Grab a hold of Jesus because he is able to straighten up your walk, to minister to your heart. And Lord, we just thank you, God. We thank you that you're so sure. We thank you that you're so secure. And we give you the praise, Jesus. And everybody say, amen.